You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Misty Ryan, national security reporter with The Post. I'm thrilled to be joined here today by our guest, the former U.S. Ambassador to Russia, John Sullivan. Mr. Ambassador, welcome to Washington Post Live. Hi, Missy. Great to be with you. Thanks so much, Ambassador. Well, let's dive in. I'm hoping that you can share your expertise on Russian President Vladimir Putin with our audience. And I'd like to ask you about the, the really extraordinary events of recent weeks um, and uh, the rebellion that we saw by the Russian Wagner Group, the paramilitary group led by Yevgeny Prigozhin. How do you see this incident affecting President Putin's grip on power? And do you think Putin is more or less dangerous to the West after this incident? Well, it certainly affects his grip on power, and it affects it in several ways. First, it it affects his standing within Russia, within his own country, in the Russian Federation, with the military, with the security services, with the elite around him, and the perception of his own people. Second, it affects uh, the most important thing he has going on right now, which is his war in Ukraine and the special military operation, and whether he'll be able to continue to pursue that special military operation without what was the most successful element of the Russian uh, forces there, which was Wagner. Whether Wagner, without Wagner, whether Russia will be able to continue to resist the Ukrainian um, counteroffensive. And then finally, he's used Wagner around the world, particularly in Africa, Libya, Mali, Central African Republic, Sudan. What does this do to his influence and Russia's influence in other countries? All called into question by this extraordinary mutiny over 36 hours in Ukraine and Russia. We saw some reports today that Prigozhin is actually still in Russia. It's difficult to know what what to trust when uh, we're getting uh, reports out of the the president of Belarus. But do you believe that Prigozhin still poses a threat to President Putin? And do you believe this incident could sort of act as a harbinger of additional challenges to Putin, either from within the Russian power structure or from Russians more generally? Well, I have to believe that it is intolerable for Vladimir Putin to have uh, Prigozhin at liberty uh, and apparently traveling within Russia and who knows where else after Putin himself labeled him a traitor uh, and said that he had stabbed him, Putin, and Russia in the back. So to the extent that Putin, excuse me, that Prigozhin survives this, uh, and I'm, I'm skeptical that he will, I think Vladimir Putin ultimately has to bring Prigozhin to heel. Uh, he may take his time in doing it because uh, that's his style, and he may also be limited in what he can do to Prigozhin right now. But I don't see how the two of them continue to exist within Russia. Putin can't allow that. Uh, you, you, you just mentioned your belief that Putin will eventually have to bring Prigozhin to heel. Do you mean a judicial process for, for Prigozhin, or do you mean some sort of extrajudicial um, action? Obviously, Russia has a long history of going after yeah. um, dissidents. What do you, what do you expect? Uh, it could be any number of things. I mean, Putin, it seems to me recently, in public statements that he and the Russian government have made uh, about the extraordinary amount of money 
that uh, the Prigozhin's corporate entities have made from the Russian government in hints about corruption. Uh, there's the prospect for future legal action in the Russian judicial system against Prigozhin, even, even if Putin sticks to his word and doesn't prosecute Prigozhin for uh, the mutiny. Uh, but the Russians are also uh, well-trained in uh, taking extrajudicial action, whether it's uh, it within Russia, as they did with Alexei Navalny, or elsewhere, particularly in Europe, in, uh, in Berlin or London. It could be any one of those uh, potential reactions uh, by Putin. But, uh, you know, people have been have been joking recently in dark humor that uh, Prigozhin should stay away from windows and tall buildings. Uh, strange yeah. things happen when people become enemies of Vladimir Putin. Yeah, and maybe watch what he what he drinks. Um, exactly. I'd like to connect. I'd like to connect the Wag the Wagner incident with Russia's war in Ukraine, which has now been going on for 16 or 17 months now. As our viewers will know, how do you see Putin's goals in Ukraine? And you mentioned Wagner's uh, role as a sort of assault spearhead force in Ukraine. Um, they had already withdrawn from the Bakhmut battle by the time this uprising occurred. But how do you see this this really extraordinary challenge affecting, if at all, Putin's goals in Ukraine? And and given especially his inability to achieve a, a decisive military victory thus far. Well, I don't think it's going to affect uh, his goals. His goals have been since the start of the special military operation to denazify and demilitarize Ukraine. And what that means is remove the government in Kyiv, remove any military that could uh, pose a threat in Putin's mind to Russia. His goals remain the same. Now, he has, uh, he has a long time horizon to achieve those goals. What the Prigozhin mutiny does is it removes a tool that he's been forced to rely on to pursue his special military operation in Ukraine. Why has he been forced to rely on this private military contractor? Because his military and his security services have been otherwise so inept. So I've said that this is an example of, of, uh, of weakness in Putin, that he can't pursue this, he couldn't pursue the special military operation without relying on this rogue and undisciplined uh, element, which we call Wagner. I'd like to bring in a viewer question. We have a question from uh, Kimber Kimberly Coburn uh, in Colorado who asks, what are the best and worst case scenarios for Putin should, uh, for Ukraine, excuse me, should Putin fail to retain power? And, and Mr. Ambassador, before you, you answer that, I'd like to add my own follow-up, which is, is the United States government ready uh, for an event as unlikely as it may seem right now where Putin would be forced from power or, or you know, leave in some fashion abruptly? Well, my former colleagues in the Biden administration, whom you know well, Missy, would always answer that question by saying, of course, the United States wants to be and is prepared for uh, contingencies. Uh, but they're all, but they'd also be quick to point out that the Biden administration is very careful to not give any suggestion that it is seeking regime change in Russia. Uh, it wants to, uh, to uh, support Ukraine uh, robustly in uh, resisting 
the Russian uh, invasion, the special military operation. But it's also been very careful in your reporting and others uh, with the Washington Post and other media have documented uh, how careful the Biden administration has been to not give a message to Putin or the Russian people that the United States is seeking regime change in Russia, and specifically that the United States wasn't behind Prigozhin's mutiny. Why is the United States concerned about this? Um, in part because, uh, and I think the question uh, from uh, that was that was submitted uh, uh, hints at this: that we need to be careful about what we uh, we hope and plan for. Uh, if we're seeking regime change in Russia, the replacement regime may be even worse. I'm not sure that Prigozhin and his cronies at Wagner are an improvement from the West perspective on what is um, a brutal regime that Putin uh, presides over in Moscow right now. So caution by the administration, not seeking regime change, uh, and in part because the regime that results may be even worse than what we've got now. Absolutely. Um, I'd like to, I'm glad that you mentioned that the issue of uh, the Biden administration trying to tread carefully. I want to get to that. But first, I'd like to ask you about the nuclear issue and threats posed by this intensifying confrontation between the West and Russia, which is the world's, uh, for our viewers, which is the uh, has the world's largest nuclear arsenal. Um, the Washington Post has reported that there are growing concerns, the West that Russia might resort to a tactical nuclear strike on a NATO country, potentially Poland, to avoid an overt defeat in Ukraine. How concerned are you, having sat there in Moscow for all that time, about the right. potential for Russia to, 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 to conduct any kind of nuclear strike or activity? And, you know, I've heard the Biden administration say for months now, since the beginning of this conflict, that they, they do see no suggestion of steps by the Russian government that would suggest preparations to use a, uh, a nuclear weapon. But at the same time, you know, there was a, an, some intelligent shortfalls when it came to predicting Russia's battlefield um, performance. And you have to wonder about our ability to see within this very um, closed system. Yeah, you know, uh, Missy, what I'd say is I, I think it is unlikely in the extreme that Putin would use a nuclear weapon in Ukraine, let alone against the NATO ally of, of the United States. Why do I say that? I think it would be irrational. I don't think it would improve Putin's position either in the context of the special military operation or uh, in thinking about what it would do is to, to his support from countries that he's relied on, principally China. We've seen reporting in the media recently about warnings that uh, Putin has received from President Xi about not using a nuclear weapon. Uh, I can only imagine uh, that uh, Prime Minister Modi would feel the same way as India sits between a nuclear-armed Pakistan and a nuclear-armed China. None of those leaders who have not broken with Putin yet, uh, in my opinion, would support uh, his use of a nuclear weapon. Now, to get to the point you made, um, I said it's irrational It was for him to use a nuclear weapon. It was also irrational for him to invade Ukraine when he did. We in the administration tried to make this case to him, principally CIA director Bill Burns, but others as well, B Burns directly to Putin, but others as well, including myself, to our interlocutors in the Russian government. Many Western leaders, and particularly Western business leaders that I spoke to, 
before February 24th of last year, before the invasion, didn't believe me when I told them what was going to happen, what I was convinced was going to happen, which was a Russian invasion of Ukraine. And their rationale was, it doesn't make any sense. He wouldn't improve his geopolitical position. And he hasn't. It's been a catastrophic, there have been catastrophic losses for him. So what does that mean for nuclear weapons? I say it's irrational. But he's done irrational things before, like invading Ukraine in the way he did. And because the risk of nuclear war is so great, even if the risk is quite low, as I think it is, it's still something that any American president and his administration would have to tread carefully in, in considering. Uh, that is actually very sobering. Uh, I'd like to ask you now about the, the counteroffensive, Ukraine's um, attempt to reclaim Russian-held territory, which has been going on for several weeks now. Uh, we've seen the Ukrainian forces capture about 50 square miles of Russian-held territory so far, but at the same time, they've been able, unable so far to make the kind of breakthrough gains that we saw last fall. What, um, what do you think we should conclude from, what are the larger strategic long-term implications of you know, this relative stalemate that we've seen now since the fall of 2022? And do you think the United States may be underestimating Russia's staying power on the battlefield and, it, and Putin's ability to continue to throw resources, men, weapons, money at this conflict? I don't think we in the United States government, I know Chairman Milley is in underestimating uh, the Russian uh, government's ability to resist um, an offensive by, by Ukraine. Um, it would be a mistake, and I've said this myself publicly over the last several months, it would be a mistake to think that uh, the Russian military uh, is, uh, is, is now just a paper tiger that couldn't uh, present a vigorous defense to defend the territory it's already seized in, uh, in Ukraine. That's a mistake. Um, our military leaders, I don't believe, are, uh, are, are acting in that mistaken impression. The Russians have dug in. They've had a lot of time to dig in, to uh, prepare minefields, prepare their defenses, which is why it's been as difficult for the Ukrainians to make uh, tactical battlefield advances, uh, why it's been as difficult and as slow as it has been. But I'd add this other caution from last year. And I remember I was, I was ambassador in Moscow last year until um, September. Uh, mm -hmm. And in the late spring and early summer, Ukrainian leaders kept talking about the offensive that they were going to launch. And it was coming soon, and it was going to come in July and then in August. And it ultimately took a lot longer. But finally, we saw that breakthrough in Kharkiv and then later uh, in the fall uh, to recapture Kherson. So I, I think at the end of the day, it's too soon to tell how the Ukrainian counteroffensive is going. I wouldn't underestimate the Russians, but I also wouldn't underestimate the Ukrainians. And we've done that a couple of times before. What's your, what's your analysis of how far Putin can afford to go or would be willing to go in terms of conscription, uh, you know, a more broad draft of, of Russian men into this fight? It's hard for us, I think, from the outside to understand the extent to which a leader in a very uh, autocratic system like Putin's Russia, um, how far they can go in terms of taking steps that actually might trigger public opposition in an environment where, where opposition has been so tightly controlled. 
Well, uh, you know, Putin, Putin has put himself in a position where it's difficult for him to do anything than double down on the special military operation. I've said for since the start that Putin is not interested in an off-ramp. He wants to achieve the goals of the special military operation, denazify and demilitarize Ukraine. He has a long time horizon. He is willing uh, on behalf of the Russian people to impose enormous costs on Russia to achieve those objectives. Um, it's, it's a messianic view he has of Russia and himself. He views this as a civilizational struggle. They use that term in describing their, their conflict against the collective West, which in their mind is the United States and all of the so-called vassal states that in their mind we control. They're, they published a paper, they, they call it the concept of their foreign relations. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs published it a couple of months ago. And on the very first page, it talks about the civilizational struggle between Russia and the Russian people and the decadent uh, West that is on a steep, steep decline. So I believe Putin and those around him both believe it. Uh, but even if they don't, they are committed to it and they can't pull back now. He can't pull back now. He doesn't have the option to just decide, as Lyndon Johnson did in 1968 after the Tet Offensive, right? Commits hundreds of thousands of U.S. troops to South Vietnam. And then still the, the North Vietnamese Army and the Viet Cong launched the Tet Offensive. Johnson decides that this is a real problem for him, if only politically, in addition to for the security and reputation of the United States. What does he do? He doesn't run for re-election, retires to the LBJ ranch in Texas. Putin can't do that. He doesn't have that option. That system he's in that he's constructed won't allow that to happen. He won't survive that. Well, let me ask you then about, you know, uh, a hypothetical resolution or denouement to this, this conflict. You said that Russia... Putin is not looking for an off-ramp, but you know, there's been, and, and I, I, given that this takes a few speculative steps to, to get to, but do you um, share the view that I've heard from many other um, observers in this in this field that, that potentially Putin might settle for an agreement that would lock in gains that he's made in, in the Donbass and in other regions of Ukraine, and then of course, retain Crimea. Do you think that that's something he can live with if if the Ukrainians were willing to accept that? Not for good, not permanently. Mm -hmm. uh, I I always say when I say he don't he doesn't want an off ramp. If we stay with the the highway or turnpike analogy, he, he'd take a rest area and a ceasefire, some agreement where he consolidates the the geographic gains that that they've made on sovereign Ukraine. Sure, he might agree to that uh, eventually, not now, but at some point where he thinks that the special military operation is really ground to a halt, and this is the best that he can, he can get for now, but he will never surrender his pursuit of those goals to denazify and demilitarize Ukraine. So yes, an agreement in the future is possible. It will only be transitory. It will never, in his mind, be permanent. No, that, and that's a point we hear all the time from the Ukrainians. Um, I'd like to move right now, uh, turn back to the, the U.S. response to this crisis, to the war in Ukraine and to the, the standoff with Russia. 
we've seen the Biden administration attempt to maintain support for this U.S.-led coalition that has imposed sanctions on Putin, attempted to isolate him diplomatically, while also making clear, as you mentioned earlier, that the United States is not seeking regime change. Um, and the administration is seeking to maintain open channels in certain areas, including arms control. Um, we've seen President um, Biden prioritize avoiding a direct military conflict with Russia. And this has been particularly evident on the back and forth that we've seen over which weapon system should be provided to Ukraine and then the whole uh, debate over uh, Ukraine's accession to, to NATO. Do you think that the administration um, is, is striking the right balance? What else does it need to do to balance these two tracks of um, you know, deterrence of a major um, destabilizing global conflict, but at the same time not permitting Putin to take these kind of, as you say, irrational and very destabilizing steps? Well, I think the administration has been slow in providing the support that Ukraine needs and that would not provoke uh, a dramatic response by Russia. I think the facts speak for themselves with all the different weapon systems that uh, we initially said no to, and then ultimately allies and the Ukrainians persuaded us uh, to do so. Had we been, uh, had we done that sooner, Ukraine would be in a better position now in pursuing its offensive this summer. Uh, so it's it's uh, it's something. It's a it's a balance that the Biden administration has uh, has sought to strike. It is uh, it, it's it's they're difficult decisions to make. But I think the record would show that we have been slow uh, over a year and a half, over a year and a half now in uh, in in making the right decision and providing the support that uh, that Ukraine needs. We've seen other countries that are allied with the United States, other countries from NATO, such as France, take a different approach or at least adopt a different tone when it comes to ties with Russia, more explicitly talking about the need to maintain Russia as not necessarily a partner, but you know, a, a neighbor that you have to have dealings with to Europe um, and uh, attempting to uh, maintain a little bit more of an open channel there. How do you think about long-term Western-Russian ties? How should we um, conceive of this even after there is some kind of resolution, whatever it may be, to the Ukraine conflict? Putin is 70. You could see him sticking around for another 15 to 20 yeah. years. Um, how should we think about this? So, uh, you know, my view has been that uh, the United States, NATO, the rest of the world has got to come to grips with the problems that Russia presents, the Russian Federation. Uh, and what we're dealing with, however, is a government in the Kremlin now, in a highly personalized system, led by Vladimir Putin, that is uh, extremely dangerous and destabilizing, not only within Russia, but to the international system, and particularly in Europe. So you mentioned uh, the, fr the French government's approach. I thought one of the, the world leaders who was the most uh, disrespected and insulted by President Putin was uh, President Macron, who spoke with Putin many times right before the special military operation began and pleading with him not to do it and being assured by Putin that they were not going to invade Ukraine and they had no plans to do so, lied to his face. How can anyone trust 
the leadership of the Russian government now, after senior Russian leaders from Putin on down, the foreign minister, foreign minister Lavrov, several times in February of 2022, assured the world that there were no plans to invade Ukraine and that Russia would not. And they were lying. So I, and the problem I have is that this government in Russia is, you know, I think back to the old, uh, the Russian phrase that President Reagan used to like to quote to uh, to Gorbachev's uh, dismay, trust but verify, there's no trust anymore. There's only verification. And unfortunately, uh, work toward a means to contain and address the aggressive revanchist Russia that's governed by uh, by Putin now, until we can come to uh, a better arrangement and understanding uh, with this uh, this geographic colossus, which is the Russian Federation, with all that oil and gas and its nuclear weapons, we can't just turn our backs on Russia. Of course, we have to deal with Russia, but we have to do it in a smart and sensible way. Okay, we've got about three minutes left and I'm gonna to try to squeeze in two more questions. Um, the Wall Street Journal reported this week that the United that Russia is in contact with the Biden administration about a potential prisoner swap for the detained reporter Evan Gerskovich. Um, what do you see as the larger implications if this is achieved of this series of prisoner swaps between the United States and Russia? We've seen a number of them now over the last year. Yeah, there've been there've been uh, been a couple. There was uh, uh, you know, getting Trevor Reed home, and then of course Brit Brittany Griner, but at but a very high cost for uh, dangerous Russian criminals who were convicted in our judicial system, which is a genuine judicial system as opposed to the judicial system in Russia. But Missy, with respect to this recent reporting, I'd flag one thing for you. It's been my experience that uh, the Russian government, and particularly the FSB, will create uh, the uh, the impression that uh, the Russians are willing to deal, which then gets the US government and US media interested, expectations raised, and then the Russians back off. Why do they do that? Because the more that happens, the more pressure that builds up on the US government, on the White House, on the president to make a deal that's more advantageous to the Russians. So maybe there are discussions going on, but no deal is final until, uh, the the uh, the individuals have actually been exchanged, and the FSB does uh, give head fakes on uh, on these types of uh, of discussions to uh, to its own advantage. Just last question for you, Ambassador. Given the fact that you were sitting there in Moscow, um, starting at a time where there were better U.S.-Russian relations, um, there's been a lot of speculation here in Washington about what Putin is thinking at any given moment. Um, you know what what level of checked or unchecked power does he have? I would love your observations that if you could share with your audience about Putin the man and you know what he's like when you sit down with him, how you how you what's your read on him personally? Well, he's uh, he he likes to give the impression that he is very much in control of of his uh, his person, uh, of himself, of his government. Uh, and so it's a very carefully curated, cultivated image. Uh, he never wants to appear uh, rushed, pressured, flustered. Um, the only time that I've seen in recent memory Putin look a little flustered was the address he gave on the Saturday night uh, in the midst of Prigozhin's mutiny. 
which is why this is such a serious thing for him. He spent decades creating this image of himself as a powerful leader. He's created this power vertical in Russia that he controls. And as Secretary Blinken said, the events of the last several weeks have sowed some big cracks in uh, in that power base that Putin finds uh, both personally and professionally uh, extremely difficult to accept. Well, I could uh, sit and ask you questions for many more hours, but unfortunately we're out of town, uh, time. Um, we'll have to leave it here. Thank you so much for joining Washington Post Live, Mr. Ambassador. Thanks, Missy. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.